This podcast is made possible by Lily. Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. Dr. Hope Rugo is Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the University of California, San Francisco, Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, where she is also the Director of Breast Oncology and Clinical Trials Education. Dr. Rugo is also a member of the BreastCancer.org Professional Advisory Board. She is a principal investigator of a number of clinical trials and has published hundreds of peer-reviewed papers. At the European Society for Medical Oncology Congress 2022, Dr. Rugo presented results from the TROPICS-2 trial, which was looking to see if the targeted therapy Tridelvi could offer more benefits for people diagnosed with previously treated metastatic hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative breast cancer than chemotherapy. Currently, Tridelvi is approved to treat previously treated metastatic triple negative breast cancer. She joins us to discuss the results. Dr. Rugo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get to the results, could you just briefly explain to us what Tridelvi is and how it works? Absolutely. This is a really exciting area right now in the treatment of really all cancers. But we've, of course, had a remarkable data in the last few years for breast cancer. The class of drugs are called antibody drug conjugates, and they're made by the, the basic construct is an antibody that's directed to a receptor that's expressed more highly on a cancer cell than a normal cell. Then there's a linker, and this linker actually, it's really interesting, you can't tell now, but it took decades to evolve these linkers that could be digested selectively in the tumor cell. So they have to be stable in your blood, but in the tumor cell, be digested by enzymes that might be increased in the tumor, and that's taken a long time. And then there's a payload, so basically of the antibody, and then this payload stuck on with a linker that's stable in your blood, could be digested in the tumor cell. And that payload has to carry a big bang for the buck. So the payload has to be active at what people refer to as nanomolar concentrations, but we don't know that it needs to be exactly that. It just needs to be really a potent drug at very low concentrations. And then what happens is the receptor has to be something that when an antibody binds to that receptor on a cancer cell, uh, that it actually brings, it's a fascinating process. It brings the antibody drug conjugate complex into the cell. So basically the the receptor is internalized. It's then digested. These proteases or enzymes in the cell digest the linker and release the toxin. So the first generation of antibody drug conjugates, this worked really well, but it only worked in cancers that had a very high expression of the receptor that you targeted the antibody to. But the new generation of antibody drug conjugates has linkers that are more easily uh, digested in the cancer cell. And then it has membrane permeable or hydrophilic, they can be soluble in water, toxins that can leak out of the cancer cell and kill nearby cells, which this bystander effect. So basically we have a new way of delivering toxins or chemotherapy that's more tumor specific. So it has less 
although these are chemotherapy agents. There's no, there's no argument with that. They have chemotherapy-like toxicity, but they have less toxicity and less cumulative toxicity than naked chemotherapy drugs, and you're directing the toxin more to the cancer cell. Thank you. So I'm going to use an analogy just to make sure I'm understanding. So it's almost like these kinds of medicines are almost like a smart missile or a smart bomb because they have the proteins in them, if that's the right term, and they go and they attach to the cancer cell and then they release the chemo into the cancer cell without necessarily affecting the whole body like traditional chemotherapy does. Well, you know, that was our idea when we had trastuzumab amtansine referred to as TDM1 for HER2 positive disease. But that's actually not really the case now. You know, we call, I use that term smart bomb a million times, and it, it's not so much the protein, but the antibody, these monoclonal antibodies uh, that attach to the receptors that are generally protein like on the cell surface. But, you know, the smart bomb idea was that you would only target the cell that had that high expression, a HER2 positive cell. And in fact, TDM1 and even the naked antibodies like trastuzumab, they didn't work in HER2 negative or HER2 low disease. But these newer ADCs seem to, they do actually leak out. So they're not, they're, they're not as smart, right? <laughs> it's it's a sort of smart bomb. <laughs> yeah, it's a, very, it's a very smart way of using this technology to also kill nearby cells or to kill cells that have a lower expression of your target. So in the case of say, uh, sasituzumab gobatecan, uh, the idea is that the antibody is a trope 2 directed antibody and trope 2 has been is a receptor it sends signals into the cancer cell and it's been linked to worse outcome in cancers but it's and it's expressed so you see this receptor on a lot of cancers about 80% but we know that the expression varies a lot so these newer ADCs need to work regardless of the degree of expression. The other ADC, which has now had regulatory approval, not just in HER2 positive, but HER2 low disease, trastuzumab, deruxtecan, or TDXD, that one also has this bystander effect. And that's really where they coined the term bystander effect. But I believe it's an important mechanism of how these drugs work overall. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So now moving on to Tropics 2, there were three presentations, I believe, you made one of them, about the various results from this trial. So could you summarize the results? I knew you presented overall survival results, which sounded very promising. Yes, yeah, so sasituzumab is a trope 2 antibody drug conjugate. It's linked to a class of chemotherapy agents called topoisomerase 1 inhibitors. They block an enzyme that's important uh, for cell survival. And what there's actually a chemotherapy drug called irinotecan uh, that had some efficacy in breast cancer, is approved in colorectal cancer, for example. And this is the active metabolite of irinotecan, that's the payload SN38. And we already, as you mentioned, know that this is very effective in triple negative breast cancer. And there are studies evaluating sasituzumab earlier in the course of treatment of triple negative breast cancer that can't respond to immunotherapy and also in combination with immunotherapy to try and further improve outcome. There's also trials going on in early uh, stage triple negative breast cancer as well. But in the initial studies that evaluated sasituzumab govitecan, we saw activity in hormone receptor positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer that had received many 
prior chemotherapy treatments for metastatic disease, uh, where response was in the 30% range. And also the amount of time that the disease was controlled was also quite impressive. So patients' cancer stayed controlled for a longer period of time than we normally see in these later line chemotherapy settings. So Tropics was designed to evaluate the efficacy of sasetuzumab in those patients. Patients were required to have received at least two, but not more than four lines of chemotherapy specifically for metastatic disease. And it was a homogeneously treated population, which is important. Everybody had to have received a CDK4-6 inhibitor. And that's important because what we've seen is that in patients who've received these remarkably effective targeted agents given with endocrine therapy, that although patients live longer who've had CDK4-6 inhibitors, the cancers are relatively more resistant to subsequent lines of treatment. So we wanted to have this be a real world population. Everybody had to have that CDK4-6 inhibitor. And what we'd already shown was that in the patients who'd received a median of three lines of prior chemotherapy, almost everybody had disease in viscera, so liver, lung, et cetera, to be called visceral involvement. And interestingly, in this patient population, so so different from triple negative disease, the median duration of time from diagnosis of metastatic disease until randomization was four years. So that means that patients, you know, we, we know that patients now with hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer, uh, that the median survival is longer than five years, but it's not a lot longer. So these patients had already had four years so, you know, we really needed to know how long uh, the, uh, you know, we could help patients live in this situation and if we could prolong survival, because we know that the options for chemotherapy after you've received a median of three lines of chemotherapy for metastatic disease become narrower and narrower, and they, the drugs work less well, and we're dogged by cumulative side effects that make it really hard to treat patients. So patients were randomized in this setting to receive sasetuzumab or treatment of physician choice, which is a menu of chemotherapy. And in this patient population, most of whom who had received prior capecitabine, about 50% of patients received iribulin, a very effective chemotherapy agent. We had shown at ASCO 22 and now published in the journal Clinical Oncology that progression-free survival was significantly longer in patients who received sasetuzumab. There was a question about the median difference, which was just 1.5 months, but that was really due to the fact that these patients, a lot of patients' cancers progressed in the first two months, regardless of the treatment arm, because the cancers were just very resistant to treatment. But when we looked at six, nine, and 12 months, we saw that there were more patients who were alive and free from cancer progression at all of those time points. And at 12 months, what was impressive to me was that three times as many patients were alive and without disease progression. The statistics for these studies are so complicated. It really is wild. And, you know, as oncologists, we're always kind of like, how did we come up with that idea? But now a lot of studies are using what's called a statistical hierarchical design, where each endpoint before has to be significantly better with the experimental agents before you can look at the next endpoint. So the first endpoint was progression-free survival. That was significantly greater. So then you could look at overall survival. At the first endpoint that we presented at ASCO, there were not enough events for overall survival. And so although it was numerically longer in patients who'd received sasetuzumab, it wasn't significantly better. 
But at this second interim analysis that we presented at ESMO, we had almost 400 events. And it's important to keep in mind when you're thinking about the number of patients who were randomized, there were 543 patients randomized, there were 390 survival events. So this is a much more mature analysis um, of understanding you know, what happened to patients and the natural history of their metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and what we showed at this analysis was that overall survival was significantly longer in patients who received sasetizumab, a very encouraging result. The median difference was 3.2 months, but the absolute numbers were 11.2 months for the chemotherapy and 14.4 months for sasetizumab. And this was a highly significant difference. When we think about the percentage of patients who were alive at 12 months, that's also to me a very important endpoint in thinking about what I tell my patients and how I can treat my patients most effectively. And it was 47% for chemo and 61% for sasetizumab. So that was really important because we had survival benefit. We looked at response, clinical benefit rate, duration of response. Those were all greater with sasetizumab. And the only complete responses were actually seen with sasetizumab. We looked at quality of life and we saw a significant delay in deterioration of global health status and quality of life, as well as fatigue with sasetizumab compared to treatment of physician choice. And we looked at a number of different patient reported outcomes different subset analyses in the presentation by my colleague Aditya Bardia. And we saw in that, uh, in that analysis as well that there were uh, really um, a delay in deterioration in almost all of the different factors that we evaluate uh, that could be important to our patients. Um, all these different functional scales and symptom scales they're called. And the only one where sasetizumab was a little worse was diarrhea which we generally can manage pretty well with delay in treatment and uh, dose reductions as well as antidiarrheal therapy. And interestingly, it's definitely a, a patient population that I don't see as much because I don't see as much diarrhea, but there's probably differences between different patient populations and that toxicity. We, we did look at safety again as well, and safety is so important when we look at these new drugs uh, because you know, you, you've got to sort of weigh the safety against the benefits. And we didn't see any new safety signals. The primary issues are neutropenia, and as I mentioned, some diarrhea, but neutropenia is just so incredibly important to uh, monitor, to understand, and to treat uh, proactively in patients receiving this antibody drug conjugate. Okay. And neutropenia, I just want to clarify for anyone listening, that's low white blood cell count, so that increases someone's risk of infection, correct? Well, so it's really specific. Um, you know, we don't, we don't actually really care what the white count is um, unless it's below 1,000 because then we know the neutrophils are low. So your white blood cells are made up of different components. And the important component um, is neutrophils. We know lymphocytes play some role, but we don't really have a good handle on how to evaluate lymphocytes in patients with solid tumors like breast cancer. They seem to be more important where you've done a bone marrow transplant or something and the immunity is really messed up. But for patients who are getting standard chemotherapy, neutropenia is a very, very common toxicity. So not a drop in the overall white count, but the neutrophils, we used to call them polys. They're funny little cells that, that fight infection more effectively than anything else. And it's what's fascinating, you know, coming from before we had growth factors that could keep your neutrophils better. Uh, what we saw was when neutrophils were low, you also could get more mouth sores and the, the mucosa or the lining of your gut 
wasn't good at preventing bacteria from crossing over. So if you have good neutrophils, and we think about this as just being a thousand or close to a thousand or more of the neutrophils, that then you're protected against that kind of infection. So we now use preventive or prophylactic growth factors, the generic name being filgrastim, that are giving us injections under the skin. And they're incredibly effective at preventing neutropenia from sasetizumab, um, but also dose reduction is as well. And in patients who have a lot of so-called neutropenia, a dose reduction is an important way of managing this as well. Okay, thank you. So it sounds like, if I can summarize again, just quickly, that Tridelvi was more effective improved both progression-free survival and overall survival and offered the same or better quality of life as chemotherapy for the people in the study. Right. That's absolutely right. I think that's an excellent summary. <laughs> in one sentence. Well, so I, I think that's really important because you know, we didn't, you know, I've been doing this for decades and we didn't think that we could actually reach survival endpoints in many settings. And the only other study that looked at chemotherapy in patients who had heavily pretreated hormone receptor positive disease, and it was overall patients, you know, in this study, it was before we divided things up so well and understood the biologic significance of the different subsets, it was a trial called the EMBRACE trial. This trial looked at the chemotherapy drug Eribulin and compared it to a menu of chemotherapy agents. And the menu was actually quite similar to what we used here in Tropics 02. And what they saw was Eribulin improved outcome and improved survival, but the median difference in survival was in the you know, slightly under two month range. And so you know, then Eribulin became a standard of care and got approved. And now we have a drug that's superior to aribulin, which you know almost 50% of the patients received. So it is really a big advance in this patient population. But we have to think about that in the context of other drugs that we have available, which of course is your next question. Yes. Well, I do want to ask about the HER2 low uh, cancers in this study. I know that was, uh, again, presented by one of your colleagues on the study. And it sounds like Tridelvi is approved to treat metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Your results showed, okay, now it can offer benefits to hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease. And also, it, it sounds like, if I'm remembering the results correctly, Tridelvi can also help treat now HER2 low disease. So if you could talk about that. Well, so I think I might need to talk about that, not to redirect at all, but I, I think we need to talk about that in the context of trastuzumab durextacan. And I would say it's not also that it would treat it. It is that in hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, about two thirds of patients tumors have a low expression of HER2 without gene amplification. So they don't meet criteria for having HER2 positive disease, but they don't have zero expression either. And it's important to keep in mind that we don't, uh, our tools for looking at HER2 were all designed to differentiate positive, you can get trastuzumab, or negative, and not to differentiate between low levels of expression. So there's a lot of work going on trying to understand that. And the discordance between different pathologists, there was a recent paper, eight pathologists looked at tumor samples and they had a greater degree of discordance in patients who had so-called HER2 low one plus disease versus two plus disease. I mean, really significant discordance. So 
you know, differentiating zero from one plus is something that we're still struggling with and looking at. But trastuzumab Durexican, as you know, demonstrated these unbelievable superiority results uh, comparing trastuzumab Durexican, I'll call TDXD, versus our prior standard second line therapy for her two positive breast cancer, TDM1. I mean, huge difference with a p-value none of us have ever seen before. And we're looking forward to hopefully seeing survival improvements in the next you know, few months, potentially at a, 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 a you know, upcoming Congress at the end of the year, or if not then next year. So I think that you know, this, is, this was just a huge advance in HER2 positive breast cancer, and it's now being tested in the early stage setting. But when they did their initial studies with TDXD, uh, they also uh, looked at patients who had low expression of HER2 and even HER2 zero because they had postulated from preclinical data in animals and cell lines, et cetera, that there would be this so-called bystander effect that we were just talking about. So the idea was you would get a little bit of a signal. So they did a, a, what's called a phase one umbrella study and treated uh, about 54 patients or so. And they saw a very nice response and very good disease control, kind of similar to what I talked to you about sasetuzumab in their initial phase one study. Um, the number of patients who had HER2 zero was minuscule, so it was really hard to evaluate. So they designed their next study to be powered to look at patients who had HER2 low that was confirmed centrally, one plus or two plus without gene amplification, and in patients with hormone receptor positive disease. And in contrast to Tropixo2, the median number of lines of chemotherapy was just one, 70% of patients had received CDK4-6 inhibitors, about 90% had uh, visceral disease. And so it was a much less heavily pretreated group of patients. And as presented at ASCO and published in the New England Journal of Medicine, they, got, they saw tremendous improvement in progression-free and overall survival in the hormone receptor positive group. And there was a suggestion of benefit in a, uh, in a sort of exploratory analysis of the 58 patients who had triple negative disease. So because of that data, there was a big call to look at HER2 low status and how it affected efficacy of sasetuzumab. So we went back and looked at this. Now, remember that, again, the ability to differentiate HER2 zero from one plus is not great, and, uh, but we did this centrally, of course, in the patients who were treated on tropics. And what we found uh, was, uh, as you pretty much would have expected in the HER2 low and HER2 zero population. So we had you know, a little more patients who had HER2 low than HER2 zero, as you, again, this is what we've seen. So maybe 60% or so, 65% were HER2 low and the rest were HER2 zero. And basically the issue was to look to see whether there was a differential benefit of sasetuzumab and there wasn't. Sasetuzumab was better than treatment of physician choice across all of these groups of patients for progression-free survival. And we'll look at the overall survival in an upcoming analysis. Uh, but it was interesting. I mean, you know, people, this was an unplanned subset analysis and the uh, sort of relative benefit was a little greater in the HER2 low than in the HER2 zero, but the numbers were different, right? Two thirds versus one third or so. So it's really nothing you can make anything of in unplanned subset analyses where you didn't so-called power your trial to look at these subsets. But I think it gave us the confidence that this drug works regardless of HER2 low. Just talking about HER2 low briefly, about two thirds of hormone receptor negative and about one third of triple negative are one plus or two plus without gene amplification for HER2. And so far, 
we don't know that this has any independent impact on prognosis, so outcome, outside of the fact that this tends to define a group of patients who have you know, more biologically treatment-sensitive disease versus non-treatment-sensitive. So, you know, so we have divided our cancers, uh, but we don't use it clinically into these uh, subsets by RNA, gene expression, so-called intrinsic subtypes. And there's a group that's more commonly seen in triple negative disease called basal-like. And interestingly, basal-like disease is much less likely to be HER2 low. They're more likely to be HER2 zero. And we already know that's a group of tumors in patients that don't respond as well to treatment and or as long. So I think that HER2 low is fascinating. I mean, we're using it to predict benefit of trastuzumab durextecan, but it doesn't seem to have any prognostic impact by itself. So that's why we looked at it in sasituzumab uh, in Tropic so 2 and I think uh, that was very helpful confirmatory data. Okay, thank you. I'm curious, given all the research you do, are there studies going on to more accurately separate cancers into HER2 low, HER2 zero, HER2 positive? Is that something that's being done? I mean, I know you said that it doesn't necessarily affect prognosis yet, but perhaps if we had better tests to figure that out, would it? I'm curious. I don't, I don't know. I think that there's a little bit of data from a trial called the DAISY trial that was done in France, which is fascinating. And that trial actually presented some uh, data at ESMO 22 also, where they, and, and there's other studies that have looked at this sort of heterogeneous expression of HER2 low across different um, sites of tumor and across even one site of tumor. Uh, and so that, you know, it's, it's, Tumors we know have heterogeneous expression of HER2. We've seen that in HER2-positive tumors where, you know, you respond better to HER2-targeted therapy if you have a lot of HER2-positive cells versus very few. And, you know, obviously we're not going to take out all of the tumors in a metastatic disease, but it does, you know, I think trying to look at potentially imaging ways of finding out how heterogeneous HER2 expression is would be really fascinating for the future. I don't know if we're going to get better tests. There is a study called Destiny Breast 06 that's looking at HER2 ultra low to try and address this question. It's over 800 patients, first line chemo for hormone receptor positive disease, HER2 negative, that's looking not only at one plus or two plus, uh, but also at patients who just have more than zero, but didn't quite meet a one plus. And it will be very interesting to try and see if the drug is equally effective in patients who have ultra-low disease, generally people believe that it will be, and that this sort of differentiation in HER2-low is a little bit contrived, you know, and it was part of what did this, you know, powered the study, and it led to great results and approval, which is, you know, you can't argue with that, um, and a new treatment option for our patients. But do we really believe that patients who have HER2-zero disease aren't going to benefit early on from TDXD? No. But right now it's sort of led to a treatment paradigm or approach, which is that in patients who have HER2 low disease, hormone receptor positive in the second line setting, we would preferentially use TDXD. In triple negative disease, sasetizumab, because we have phase three data, but then we wanna understand the effectiveness of these drugs in sequence. And so that's sort of the next step in our investigations. 
And then for the third of patients with the most common subset of uh, breast cancer worldwide, uh, we have sasetizumab govitecan as an option in those HER2-0 patients. And we, of course, will be looking at sasetizumab in less heavily pretreated settings as well. Okay, actually, that was, I think you might have answered my last question, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. So all this information together, if you could kind of put it in context, say I've been diagnosed with metastatic hormone receptor positive. Well, actually, I'm not even going to, because it sounds like we have, you know, it doesn't, the hormone status may not matter and the HER2 status may not matter. So I have metastatic disease. It's previously treated. What what do all these results mean for me now? Do I have more options? Are there more, you know, what is the sequence now? What What would you tell your patients? Well, I think first, the subset really does matter a lot. I mean, hugely, right? So in patients who have hormone, who have HER2 positive disease, there's a separate path of treatment. Uh, and that's really important because HER2 positivity, three plus by immunohistochemistry, looking at the protein, and or gene amplification, in those patients, HER2-targeted therapy is critical and makes an enormous difference on survival. So if we take out that group of patients, we have patients who have triple negative disease and hormone receptor positive disease. In that patient population, uh, in hormone receptor positive disease, we're now looking at patients based on the recent regulatory approval in the United States, based on if they have a little bit of HER2 expression, so-called HER2-low, in the second line setting. But remember, this is chemotherapy we're talking about. So our first treatment in those patients is sequential endocrine therapy with targeted agents, CDK4-6 inhibitors, aromatase inhibitors, fulvestrant. We're still working on these oral drugs like fulvestrant as uh, also was talked about at ESMO. We haven't quite figured out the exactly right way to study them. They're not out there quite yet. Uh, but you know, other targeted agents are being evaluated at the Everolimus, Alpelicib, which has toxicity issues, but is still quite effective and other agents. So this is all what we do in sequence. First line chemotherapy in these patients tends to be capecitabine because it's an oral agent, no hair loss, um, and people have a lot of freedom if they tolerate uh, and metabolize capecitabine, it's a great option. So then we get to the second line, hormone receptor positive disease. So we're gonna look at our HER2 expression if it's HER2 low, we're going to use TDXD. There is some hair loss. And one of the, I think, key toxicities we have to, you know, we have to manage nausea. But then this risk of interstitial lung disease, we have to be very, very careful about patients who have so-called ground glass opacities on their CT scans of the chest and no symptoms need to hold drug and be treated with uh, lower dose steroids until it clears up. And then they can restart. It generally, we restart at the same dose unless it doesn't resolve very quickly. If you have symptoms related to pneumonitis or interstitial lung disease, shortness of breath, cough, et cetera, low oxygen, you can't be retreated with TDXD because deaths have occurred. So that's a really critical component. So what do we do with patients? And I have a number in my patient population who've had previous pneumonitis, for example, from Everolimus or even from another chemo drug. In those situations, um, those patients were excluded from the trials, but we need to monitor those patients very, very carefully and really jump in earlier. You cannot wait to get the CT scans, particularly in the first year. I don't recommend going any longer than nine weeks um, for the first year. And if you did really, really well, maybe you could go out to 12 weeks, but you don't want to wait until symptoms develop. And that's a question that's been asked a lot. So that's what we're doing in that patient population. In the triple negative patient population, I would use sasetizumab because there's phase three data 
in over 500 patients with improved overall survival. So now we get past that time where we get to our patients who have hormone receptor positive HER2 zero disease. In that patient population, I would use sasetuzumab. The trial required that patients have two lines of prior chemo. Sometimes we're a little wiggly on that and use it a little bit earlier. We see less toxicity and better efficacy. Uh, if you're you know, strictly me, yeah, holding to the trial, you would use it after two lines of chemotherapy. And in patients who've now received their, you know, trastuzumab can or sasetuzumab, depending on the subgroup, I would try the other agent in sequence. And it doesn't have to be right after the other one, but it could be after another line of chemotherapy because I've actually already seen patients who've benefited in sequence. There's a whole nother area, which is how do we treat patients with brain metastases? We know, for example, that TDXD has uh, efficacy in, brain, in patients with brain metastases. There are studies looking at this and looking at it with sasetuzumab govotecan. So, you know, we, we want to be able to use these drugs in sequence as well. I think it's important to keep in mind the side effects, the low neutrophils that we talked about earlier for sasetuzumab, making sure uh, we manage the neutropenia and the diarrhea the, for the patients with TDXD. I think upfront management of nausea is incredibly important. Olanzapine, the antipsychotic at low doses has been my friend because it, it just works incredibly well for the delayed nausea. Then you take it every night at bedtime, helps people sleep, um, doesn't have some of the other side effects that our anti-nausea drugs have, um, and then monitoring for pneumonitis. Okay, Dr. Rugo, thank you so much. This has been incredibly informative and I really appreciate your time. Great, uh, thank you so much for your interest and for providing this, uh, I think, really important educational resource. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.